McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Hamburglar, the time is yours. Bravo, bravo. He said, these are McDonald's best burgers ever. And then, can I keep them? And then he just grabbed them and ran away. Brabble. Now get a Big Mac or double cheeseburger for two bucks in the app. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. Must opt into rewards. Visit McD app for details. Available at most restaurants in this area. Comparison of McDonald's classic burgers to prior burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. We've got Joe Healy here as usual. And today, Joe, we are here to talk about the 2020 preseason top 25 we have finally reached it. The, the calendar has been turned. The season is almost upon us, and we are ready to talk about the 2020 season in earnest. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I mean, I, I talked about this a little bit in the fall, and I feel like at the time like it seemed like an abstract thought, but I, I really think in the fall it's one of those deals where you, you're looking forward to the holidays, and then the holidays come, and then you come back from the holidays, and pretty much at that point you're – in go mode for getting ready for the college baseball season. And like I said, that maybe sounds like a little bit of an abstract thought in October, but that's kind of exactly how it played out. I mean, we got back from the holidays, we got back from ABCA, and then and here it is, and we are in um, full preseason mode now, which is an exciting time. You know, we've spent a little bit of time talking about what games we're going to see and where we're going to where we're going to go early in the season, and that always gets me jazzed up for it. And I'm sure talking about our top 25 will do the same. Absolutely. And it's, it's kind of crazy that, that this is where, where we are already, um, you know, looking at, at the calendar. It doesn't, doesn't quite feel like it's time for this yet, but, but it is, and we are in go mode. And today is, um, we are recording this before, uh, a few days before the Top 25 comes out, but it, com- it came out today on Monday. And if you go over to BaseballAmerica.com, you can see the full Top 25 we have the t- uh, first five team capsules, we'll roll those out continually, o- or continue to roll those out over the, the rest of this week, um, six through 10 slated to go on Tuesday and so on. Uh, so if you're looking for your team uh, further down the pole, uh, by the end of the week, all 25 teams will be there and, and you can read uh, projected lineups and, and good news and bad news and players to know and, and pass to Omaha and, and all that good stuff for all 25 teams. And I would encourage you to dive into that uh, as much as possible because we're not going to run through all 25 teams on this podcast. Uh, again, we, we spent all this time writing it. You can, you can go read it. In this medium, we, we want to attack things a little bit differently. Uh, we are certainly going to talk about the top 25 and some of these teams, but uh, I, I'm not going to promise you that we're going to talk about all 25 of them because we're not. Uh, so if you're, if you're disappointed we haven't gotten to your team, you can let us know on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And hopefully we will address them in the future. We still have a few weeks to go before the season actually starts. So there, there are still a few more uh, podcasts to come of preseason content. 
Uh, we will be back on a regular schedule. Obviously, we've been off that for about a month now uh, as a result of the holidays. And then the preview issue just takes up so much of our time that we, uh, we had to take a little bit of a break here. But we're back. We're happy that you're joining us again or that you're joining us for the first time. Uh, we, we will be on a regular schedule moving forward and, and then throughout the season as well. So with that little bit of housekeeping out of the way, uh, remember just go visit baseballamerica.com for all of your all of your college baseball needs and, and all of your other needs. The top 100, if you're into that, on the professional side is, is dropping uh, a little later in the, in the week. So they'll, they'll have plenty of content about that as well. Big week at baseballamerica.com. And I would encourage, to check, check it, encourage you to check it all out there. We now are going to jump into this top 25 uh, going to run through it uh, here uh, a little bit piecemeal, talk about some of these teams, talk about some of the bigger themes, uh, but we are going to start at Vanderbilt number one, Louisville number two, Arizona State number three, Florida four, Miami five, Texas Tech six, Georgia seven, Michigan eight. For the rest of it, remember, check out BaseballAmerica.com. Uh, so Joe, at number one, we went with Vanderbilt, the reigning national champion, and I think for both of us, it was a pretty clear-cut decision. It was one we made relatively quickly uh, and had definitely felt like we'd been leaning that way basically since last June. And when you look at this Vanderbilt team, they have a lot coming back. They also have some holes. SEC Player of the Year, J.J. Bleday is gone. There were six seniors from last year's team that are, that are now gone. But Austin Martin, the potential number one overall pick in this year's draft and the most dynamic player in the country, he's back. Kumar Rocker, uh, you might remember him as the most outstanding player in the College World Series, the guy that threw the no-hitter uh, in Super Regionals against Duke, freshman of the year, he's back. A lot uh, of the pitching from last year is back, though Drake Fellows, who was their Friday starter, is gone. Um, those are... They've, they've got a lot coming back when you look at Martin, Rocker, Tyler Brown, Mason Hickman, Jake Eater, and then they add to that the number one recruiting class in the country headlined by right-hander Jack Leiter. He is the son of Al Leiter, who you might remember as a big leaguer for about 20 years, former All-Star. Jack Leiter was the highest-ranked player in last year's draft not to sign. He is an early freshman of the year type favorite. Uh, and it's a lot to put on anyone to say that they could do something similar to what Kumar did last year, but Jack Leiter has that kind of ability. So he adds, you, you plug him into an already really good pitching staff. They have many other freshmen who are expected to contribute quickly. And what we came out with was Vanderbilt at number one. Yeah, I mean, they just check a lot of boxes. I think that's almost probably exactly what I said about them last year, but it holds true this year. I mean, they, they could have... the the, the best position player in college baseball in Austin Martin when you consider um, what he gives you offensively, what he can do on the bases, and the fact that, oh yeah, he can play multiple premium defensive positions, which is just not something a lot of guys can do. So um, he's as, probably as, as versatile a player as there is in college baseball. So you start with that, uh, and you talked about the pitching. I mean, that's, that's really a big part of it. They've got such a surplus of it that they're in a position where they really probably don't have enough high leverage, high profile roles for all of the big time arms they have. I mean, you mentioned a guy like Jake Eater. He is just now maybe kind of elbowing his way into the weekend rotation, but 
it wouldn't be a surprise to see, you know, partway through the year, him back in the bullpen because Jack Leiter outpitched him, and Jack Leiter's in the rotation now. And um, you, you can look maybe last year at Kumar Rocker is kind of maybe a path forward for Jack Leiter. It's easy to forget now because we saw Kumar Rocker in the postseason when he was the best pitcher in college baseball at that point, or was at least performing like it. It's easy to forget that, you know, he had some fits and starts at the beginning of the year. He was not necessarily in a regular role to begin the year. He did have his moments when he looked like a freshman. But as the season went on, he got a little bit better, he got a little more season, and by the end of it, you saw you saw the result. So I say all that to say um, Vanderbilt has an embarrassment of riches on the mound, and I think that's that's what I look for as, um, or what I look to as, as the thing that convinces me most that they're deserving of being the number one team is, is my goodness, you know, you've, it's not just Rocker, it's also, you know, Mason Hickman back, and it's, they've got a guy who can close in Tyler Brown, and there's O.J. Keeter right behind him necessarily with Jack Leiter. It's just unbelievable the amount of depth they've compiled there. Yeah, the frontline pitching at Vanderbilt is better than anyone else in the country. When, when you line it up, the top five or six or seven arms at Vanderbilt is better than the top five, six, seven arms at any other school in the country. And to me, that's, that's the reason why they're number one. When you combine that with Austin Martin coming back to lead an offense, I, that, that's all very big uh, from, from where I'm looking at it. Now, I understand that they lost several regulars off of last year's team, none more important than, than Bladey. Um, they also have a hole at shortstop that they have to fill with Ethan Paul moving on, who is a four-year starter, and they're, you know, the, the half of the catching tandem of Ty Duvall and Philip Clark. Uh, Duvall's back, Clark is gone. Uh, they have a new center fielder because Pat DeMarco's gone. Julian Infante's gone from first base. Like All of this is all very true, but in Austin Martin, they have a first-team All-American from last year, and they have that pitching staff and they have plenty of talent you know we know how talented their backups are we know how talented the freshmen are some of those guys are going to have to step up but whereas last year when especially in the first two-thirds of the season the offense kind of carried the pitching staff while the pitching staff worked itself out they now can do it in reverse which is much more what we're used to at vanderbilt where we see elite pitching carrying, shouldering more of the burden and the offense coming along for, not for the ride, but, you know, they're not quite at the same elite level. So it's going to look a little bit different. It's going to look more like what we're used to from Vanderbilt. They're going to have to win more games four to two than eight to five or whatever. But I I think that this pitching staff, especially in the front line, is unmatched and that it's going to carry them while some of these younger, inexperienced players figure out how to play every day in college and and figure out how the lineup fits together. Because right now, I don't think anything is particularly settled at Vanderbilt. Uh, You know, Joe mentioned that Austin Martin can play any number of positions. He literally can play basically anywhere on the field except catch. And they have other athletic guys that they can move around to try and find the nine best guys. And I don't think Tim Corbin's going to have settled on a lineup until April uh, he usually doesn't anyway, but I especially think that's going to be true this year. I think one one point that's important to make too, because it's not just when, in regards to Vanderbilt, but I think this is, for the listeners, a good thing to think about as we go through some of these top 25 teams. As, as you talked about, 
the guys that Vanderbilt lost. And that's a pretty impressive list of players, a pretty productive list of players. But one thing that coaches will tell you over and over again they strive for is roster balance, especially at the high major level where they are, you know, uh, trying to make it to where you don't have these seasons where you lose everybody. And if that's going to be the case, it means you're going to lose somebody just about every year. Now, sometimes you have situations where, you know, uh, maybe your, your balance got a little bit off because you had some seniors come back that you didn't expect to come back. Half and a so, dozen even. <laughs> correct. I mean, so last year you could maybe even argue their roster balance was, was a little off last year. But just generally speaking, these teams that are up at the top of this list are going to have personnel losses because that was by design. You expect to lose guys as juniors for the high-end players, and then certainly by the time they're done with four years, you're going to lose some players. So now there are some teams here that we'll get to that are a little bit of exceptions to that rule, but for the most part, view it through the lens of expecting that these teams are going to lose people. So even if it they lose five guys in the lineup, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the guys, A, the guys behind them aren't you know, going to be able to fill those roles, but also that that wasn't just the program working as expected. Yeah, so I personally, I, I thought this was reasonably clear-cut. Uh, some of my bias is basically just to find the best pitching staff and to rank them number one. Um, so I, I do acknowledge that, that some of that is there, but I, I just think the combination of battle-tested and frontline elite talent that Vanderbilt has is very impressive and is going to carry them and going to help these young players along until they're ready to take it themselves. And that doesn't mean there won't be growing pains along the way. Playing in the SEC means that it's a difficult slate for Vanderbilt and they're going to have to go through some of that. But it, I, you know, so I, I don't think that this year's Vanderbilt team is winning 59 games like they did last year. Uh, but that's a pretty safe assumption because only one team has won more than 59 games. And I think only three teams this century have won 59 games. So it, it's going to be a little, little lesser uh, in terms of the win total at least. But I do think at the end, when, when we get down to, to May, that this Vanderbilt team is, is going to be running on all cylinders and going to look very much like a national championship favorite again. Now at number two, we mentioned Louisville. And Louisville is a team that has a lot of returning pieces themselves. Uh, they, they come into this season with, with uh, feeling pretty good, I, I would think, uh, with a, a one-two punch of Reed Detmers and Bobby Miller. They've got some bats back. Uh, their whole rotation is back. I, I, I don't want to short Luke Smith here, really. Uh, but that one-two punch of, of uh, Detmers and Miller is going to stack up very well with pretty much anyone in the country. And it's a team that last year made the, the Final Four for the first time. They, you know, they advanced to their bracket final where, where they lost to Vanderbilt, but that was the furthest that Louisville has made it in the program's history. They look very much like ACC favorites again. And, Joe, you've, you've done a lot of, of the Louisville work in the, in the preseason here. I mean, this team looks like it's ready to, to contend uh, not that they didn't contend last year, they certainly did, but to, to really be one of the, the national title favorites in 2020. For sure, and I think, I, I think that there's a, a temptation on, on our part that w once a team establishes itself as a team that gets to Omaha with some regularity, and certainly Louisville is there, that they're kind of a finished product as a program. Um, but I think this is an example of a team that, to your point last year, got as far as they ever had in Omaha. Before before last year, their track record in Omaha was, was frankly not very good no. as far as once they got to Omaha. I think was, there were a lot of 0 and 2s there. Yeah, they were 2 and 8, I think, coming in to last season in Omaha. So they just not a lot of winning going on there. But last year, they, they broke through a little bit. 
And so I think that's a situation where the program is still kind of growing. And, you know, Dan McDonald's been there a long time, but that doesn't mean there still isn't growth going on. So I think that was an important point to make there. But, but this team, I think, is capable of being a team to make that jump. Obviously, the, the Reed Detmers, Bobby Miller, and, and Luke Smith, uh, you know, is, is a good guy to bring in. Because if he makes another jump in, in, in this season, uh, I mean, that's, that's a, uh, a rotation that's going to be tough to match by, by anybody, you know, Vanderbilt included. Uh, you know, Detmers and Miller are not far off from the guys we've talked about in Vanderbilt's rotation, and, and Luke Smith pitched well in the biggest games. He's kind of that personality. I mean, I think what people will remember about what last year in <laughs> Omaha was some of the controversy is maybe a strong word, but he, he was fired up after getting a strikeout against Vanderbilt and uh, threw some expletives in the way of the Vanderbilt dugout. Um, and there, there was a little bit of chirping going on there. Um, ultimately, it was it was a situation where things got maybe just a tad overheated. But that's the type of player he is. I mean, he's gonna he's going to get fired up in those moments, and I think that's something that um, that will bode well for them. Um, certainly, like that rotation. Also, you have to like Michael Kirian being back on the back end of the bullpen, and they're also one of these teams that typically has just a really large group of arms they have to choose from, and they end up kind of grab bagging through. The pitchers. I look at their bullpen last year and a very good bullpen, but they didn't really have anybody super overtaxed in that bullpen. They're not banking on two guys to throw 50, 60 innings in relief. Brian Hoeing ended up throwing more than 60 innings, but there were some starts mixed into there too, and he was someone who came in with more of a starter's pedigree, so I'm kind of accepting him a little bit, but they're a bullpen that's going to be willing to kind of piece things together, use a larger bullpen, and so you can look at a guy like a Jared Poland, for example, last year who was used in very small samples but was really dominant at times who could be a guy to take a step forward for them. Also, Adam Elliott is back. I mean, that's a guy maybe a little overshadowed with some of some of the guys in the pitching staff at large, but also in the bullpen when you compare him to a guy like Kyrian, who was on the national team, for example. So a lot of really diverse guys in the pitching staff. I really like the depth there. Offensively, they're another team that kind of stands out as, well, well, they lost this guy or they lost that guy, because you look at Tyler Fitzgerald, you look at Drew Campbell, um, you know, Jake Snyder, Logan Wyatt. Um, those were all pretty productive guys in that lineup, but I, I like what they bring back. I mean, going from a guy like Alex Benellis, who was one of the best freshmen in the country last year and, and looks like a guy who, who will be one of the better players just in college baseball, period, over the next couple of years, he's certainly a foundational piece. Lucas Dunn is another guy, a really good athlete. He's another guy like Austin Martin who can play a number of premium defensive positions. Um, you know, I think there's maybe with, there's some growth still to be done with Lucas Dunn. I mean, his numbers were certainly good last year, but I think he's he's the guy that could take another jump into being a real superstar in this lineup. And I even like some of the, the pieces that they have in the on the depth. A guy like Danny Oriente, who's just kind of like a, just a hitter. I mean, that's kind of how I would describe him. Sometimes, you know, he's been a DH, he might play a little bit outfield, but really he's in there because of his bat. Um, and what a bat it was. I mean, he hit 332 last year. So uh, certainly you will absolutely take that. So um, I think it's just a, a deep team, uh, deeper than we've, than we've seen from them. Um, I, I, but then there is that high-end piece of the pitching staff of Detmers and Miller. So certainly if you're hanging your hat on something, it's that. But I really think I've spent a lot of time, even in writing stuff to preview Louisville, you know, that's kind of what I've gravitated to. But when I really take a step back, I really do like the depth of this group. Um, they've got a lot of proven guys in the mound. And then even on the on the offense side of it, it's, it's really still a pretty veteran bunch. Yeah, I'm not really seeing a whole lot of uh, weaknesses or question marks here. The shortstop is going to be new. So that that's always a little bit of a thing when, when Tyler Fitzgerald has been holding that position for two years. And 
Louisville has a very strong um, track record at shortstop. They, they, the, the line has been very consistent that it just moves on and the next, next man up has been very good, but they got to, they got to replace him. And, you know, they do have some of these offensive pieces to replace. But the, the other thing about Louisville is that they, under Dan McDonald, they've been so good at, okay, maybe you didn't play a ton as a freshman. Maybe we, we worked you in, um, you know, every other Tuesday. And that was pretty much all the action you saw, but that you got better while, while you waited. And now that you're a sophomore or now that you're a junior and your time has come, you're ready to take it and you run with it and you break out. And so I don't know who that player is going to be this year, but I promise you it's going to happen. Uh, that's just the way the program works. And then they also added a couple nice junior college pieces in the outfield that really fit what they're trying to do offensively. They got some speed going going out there, and and you know obviously Louisville is a is a very up tempo offensive team, trying to steal bases, trying to make things happen out there. And they have a team that's going to very much be able to do that. I'm not sure how much uh, power this team has. Obviously, Benellis has it. And I think Henry Davis can hit for it, but I think it's going to be a little more manufacture runs, a little more run, uh, you know, string singles together, run the bases, you know, find a way to, to create big innings that way rather than wait for a three-run home run. Uh, but Louisville has proven over the last several years that that is a very effective strategy for them, and they can score a lot of runs doing that. Levi Usher and Luke Brown, those two junior college outfielders, and I think that's a good point because some of what they do lose with a guy like like Jake Snyder, for example, in particular, but also Tyler Fitzgerald, is guys that can really make things happen on the base paths. Now you still have guys in the lineup who can do that. You know, Lucas Dunn, chief among them, perhaps, but uh, they are going to add that element uh, to this team, being able to do that. The other thing is, though, is I I agree with your larger point about don't know how much power they're going to hit for, but. You know that really wasn't their game last year either. Now that's true. I I wanted it to be because I wanted Wyatt to hit for power, but he still hasn't, and, and that that is a very fair point. So, but I mean, but I think it's a, a a distinction worth kind of discussing a little bit, just from the standpoint of if if they are going to take another step forward, though, they maybe can't just be the same offense they were last year, and so. Now, while that offense was very, very good, and clearly it was effective. I mean, you don't get to be one of the final four teams in college baseball if it was not. But, but to your point, maybe that is a little bit of a hole there, and, and maybe someone does come out of the woodwork uh, to show that they have a little more, little more power there. So, um, but I think it's worth noting that I, I don't think they need that element to necessarily get back to where they were last year, but it is something that if they could add that element to the offense that could put them over the top. I do think one thing, and this is very nitpicky, but one thing that, that's going to need to happen quickly is that someone's going to need to emerge as some sort of protection for Benellis because he is that main power threat, and I could see him getting pitched around a fair amount uh, just because if you put him on, he's not one of these guys that, that's going to run the bases with abandon, uh, and so who then is going to provide the, the run production, the power production behind him? Uh, that'll come naturally. They'll, they'll work that out. Uh, but that is something to watch early in the season is how teams pitch Benellis, how he handles that, because now as a sophomore, without some of this other protection around, he's going to be more top-line scouting report stuff than he was even late in the season last year. And so I, I think teams are going to be geared a little more towards that, and, and they're going to have to figure it out. But again, this is an offense that, that should be built around contact and speed more than anything, and they have plenty of guys uh, that, that can get on base and, and make things happen. And uh, it, 
they're not going to have to score a ton of runs is the other thing here. The, the pitching staff is, is very good. So we'll, we'll see where Louisville goes, and we'll, we'll get a, they have a test in a hurry because they open at Ole Miss. So we'll find out pretty quickly what this, this is all about for the Cardinals. Number three, we have Arizona State. And in Vanderbilt and Louisville, we're talking about Blue Bloods of the 2010s. And now in Arizona State, uh, if you have come to college baseball in the last 10 years and ha don't know a ton about the history of the sport, uh, this one looks a little weird. But ASU is back, question mark, Joe? Like, I, that, that's the question of, of the moment. That was the question of last year. And ASU really broke through finally, get um, in a big way after two years out in the wilderness of, of missing the NCAA tournament. They get back to the tournament last year. At times, they looked like one of the best teams in the country. They were the last undefeated team in the country. They ended on a bit of a sour note in the Baton Rouge Regional, but ASU might be back. Yeah, it certainly looks that way. I mean, uh, last year they were they were a good team that kind of maybe masqueraded as a great team early in the season. Um, but we ended up, you know, obviously they ended up coming up a little bit short uh, there in the end. But but yeah, I mean, it looks like a team that, that could be back, however you want to define that. And I think at Arizona State, that's defined by getting to Omaha and competing for national titles. That's certainly been the standard set. Now, to your point, it's been a little while since that was a realistic goal uh, for this program, but it certainly is coming into 2020. And they are certainly back if you use the definition of kind of those great you know, Pat Murphy, Arizona State teams from, you know, 10 plus years ago now that had, you know, Brett Wallace and Ike Davis. And I mean, those, that was probably the last great group they had together there. And um, those teams put up a whole bunch of runs and bunches and were fun to watch. And now they were also a little bit short on the mound. And we'll get to this. It seems like Arizona State at least has the potential to not have that be a weakness this year. But certainly it starts with the offense. And I don't know, Spencer, Spencer Torkelson, you may have heard of him, is pretty good. Um, but He's going to be the top-line name there, but Trevor Halver, Alika Williams, Gage Workman. Um, they miss Hunter Bishop, but that's really the only guy in terms of that, that big group of hitters. And, um, you know, we were talking in the office the other day that, you know, it's tough to imagine that offense really cratering because even if they, you know, knock on wood and, and God forbid, but, you know, if they lose one of those guys to an injury, even if it's Torkelson, they're probably okay. Um, that's just really good how, off, how good this offense is from – from top to bottom, and th there's some depth pieces here too. Sam Ferry and Drew Swift are guys that have, have been around the program and have had at bats. So you're not even really. There certainly is a softer part of the bottom of the lineup, but it's not like you're you know you're putting guys in there that are big time question marks. So there's even a, a depth piece to it that I think maybe gets gets overlooked. The, the pitching obviously is more the question. That's where they faltered last year. I think it was they gave up 28 runs and two losses to Southern Miss. Granted, a, a pretty decent Southern Miss team that had some good offensive pieces, Matt Walner chief among them. So they could score some runs on their own. But 28 runs and two losses was not the way they wanted to go out last year. And, and this year they're really hoping to kind of change that discussion. Now, Jason Kelly is a big part of that. He's their new pitching coach, previously the pitching coach out at Washington, helped lead that team to their first College World Series appearance in 2018. Um, but the more important piece is, is the talent they have out there. Some of it is returners. R.J. Dabovich at the back end of the bullpen is going to be a key piece of that, a flame-throwing closer. Boyd Vanderkoy is going to be looking to take the next step. He was a durable guy for them last year, but still had an ERA closer to six than closer to five, so he's going to be looking to take a step forward. But then you've got a guy like Justin Fall at the front of the rotation, who was a, a, a prospect for the draft coming out of JUCO last year, but ended up coming to Arizona State instead. Um, Tyler Thornton is also in the mix. He was a freshman All-American last year at St. Mary's. And they've even had a couple freshmen that have really kind of elbowed their way in, including Cooper Benson, 
uh, freshman out of San Luis Obispo in California, uh, who, you know, according to Tracy Smith, has, has really just kind of been a dude for them in the fall. Um, so they've got a lot of options out there. It's, it's just going to be about to what extent does that potential turn into production. And that's a question for a lot of teams out there, but it's a particularly interesting question for this Arizona State squad. Yeah, I'm a big believer. Uh, they have what should be the best offense in the country. You start it with Torkelson, who's the best hitter in the country, and that's a really good starting point. Their defense is high, high level. Alika Williams is one of my favorite players to watch in the country just because he's so good at shortstop. Everything is just so easy. Uh, so they have the, the position player group is really good, and they're all juniors for the most part now. Obviously, there's some freshmen and sophomores being mixed in, but the core are juniors, and they've been through this, and they've been through both. They've been through a bad, bad year at Arizona State when everyone was wondering what was wrong with them as the Sun Devils were going to miss the tournament for the second year in a row. Then as sophomores, they dealt with a lot of success early on, and um, you know, then how do we sustain this and how do we handle it when, when we're not sneaking up on teams and, and everything. And then they experience the tournament. And I really think that all of that experience really means a lot. And now they're juniors. And we've seen what these guys can do already. And I feel like now if, they, if there's any more developmental step in them offensively, it's going to be a very, very scary offense. It already is really good, but they have the potential to be really dangerous offensively. So they're not going to have to pitch lights out. You know, we're not talking about, you know, they need to have a pitching staff like what Vanderbilt has. That, that That's not going to be necessary for them to get to Omaha or even to compete in Omaha, I don't think. But they are going to need to pitch at a much better level than they did, than they have for the last few years, but especially last year. Um, Jason Kelly has a lot. Um, a lot of people really respect what, what J.K. has done at Washington, uh, but Washington is a completely different offensive environment than what he'll be coaching uh, his pitchers to pitch in at Phoenix Muni. So there is something, there, there is some unknown just in how he's how it's going to be when, when his pitchers go from pitching in one of the more pitcher-friendly parks in the country or, or in the pack uh, to pitching in one of the, the more hitter-friendly environments. So interested to see about that, but I'm a big believer in the talent that ASU has assembled on the pitching staff as well. Dabovich is coming off of a great summer on the Cape and really made a name for himself as a draft prospect out there. Um, or made a name for himself isn't quite right, but really took a jump in terms of draft stock out there. And uh, if he can carry that over to the spring, that would be huge. Thornton showed what he could do last year at, at St. Mary's and, and against some pretty high-end competition. Uh, he was also doing it, uh, he started not, not on the weekend for them, so he initially was pitching against some better lineups than um, your average West Coast Conference team. And, and then Vanderkoy is a year older. We'll see what, exactly what that looks like. Justin Fall has all the talent in the world. We'll, we'll see what that looks like out there. I just feel like there are enough pieces there that they should be able to put it together. And part of the problem with Arizona State's pitching last year was just a depth and injury issue. They got banged up, and they didn't have the depth to handle that. If they can stay healthier this year, that would be big. But even if they do run into injuries again, the staff is deeper, and they, they should just be in a better position week in to week out. And, and I, 
I really believe that this is the team that, that returns to Omaha. It's, it's been a long time, uh, but I, I think that this is the team that, that can get Arizona State back. And they're better set up for it this year than they were last year, not just from an experience standpoint, but definitely from that, but also from a schedule standpoint, the platform they're going to be working from. Uh, it, it, everything is, is just much you know, like it, this is the year that it's been geared toward. Yeah, I mean, we, we obviously look at everything through the lens of, and understandably so, look at everything through the lens of getting to Omaha and winning a national title. But Arizona State has a chance to really live up to its billing in the regular season, too, just because you and I have talked about how the Pac-12 is maybe going to take a little bit of a step back this year. Um, so it is possible that Arizona State could really kind of rip through the Pac-12. I mean, they've got some, there are other teams out there that are going to, you know, UCLA chief among them, Arizona looks improved this year, but there's really an opportunity for them to make a statement in the regular season and really set themselves up to where they've got a national seed, you know, more or less wrapped up with a few weeks left to go in the season. And if they, this is getting way ahead of ourselves here, but if they can stay at home throughout the tournament, that's a huge advantage for them because they, at least last year, and it's going to be true, you know, for most teams, they were very much better at home than they were on the road. And I, I would anticipate that being true again this year, especially with the way the team is built and the offensive environment that they play in. So I, I think if they can do that, if they can go out, win the Pac-12, get a top eight seed, they're going to set up very well to, to get through the tournament uh, you know, to the College World Series. Number four is a team that knows a lot about going to the College World Series. Didn't do it last year, though. We're talking about Florida. The Gators uh, had a rough season, certainly by their standards, by a lot of standards, though, frankly. They were 13-17 and 17 in the SEC uh, last year. But I really believe that was a blip, that, that the talent level at Florida is equal to any of the teams we've talked about so far, pretty much, that what they have on the mound, they are incredibly deep. They may have the deepest staff that we've talked about. Now, they don't have maybe the, the frontline guys that we talked about at Vanderbilt and Louisville. They certainly don't have the frontline guys with track record. Um, Tommy Mace and Jack Leftwich both have the potential to be first-round picks this year. Uh, Mace pitched for the collegiate national team over the summer. Leftwich was really good on the Cape. I really believe in those guys, but their, their track records at Florida are not what Louisville and Florida have in their frontline guys. So there's a little bit of prove-it element uh, with Florida. They also bring in another top five recruiting class. Um, you know, it, they, they have nothing but top five recruiting classes anymore. This is like the sixth straight top five class for, for Florida, I believe. So that, that talent level in Gainesville is really high. And then they return most of their lineup. They lost their top two hitters in Nelson Maldonado and Brady McConnell. And that's a concern, not only because they were their two best hitters for average, but they were also their two biggest power threats. So that is something that does have to be replaced. But they were a team last year that had four freshmen in their everyday lineup. So those guys are now sophomores. Judd Fabian in particular, who had only been in college for uh, a couple weeks at this point last year, he, having graduated high school a semester early and, and enrolled to play in the spring, he's taken a big jump having had a full offseason in college, a full year just in college. He was good on the Cape this summer. He should be Florida's best player. He looks like a first-round pick in 2021. And any success they have, Judd Fabian's going to be at the heart of it. So I think that just from a standpoint of those four sophomores, uh, taking a step forward after their freshman year, Austin Laneworthy is back as a senior. 
getting his bat back is big for them. And they have some impressive talent coming in. I really like what the Gators have collectively. If we're looking for holes, they're pretty easy to find. It's that they're starting a freshman. They're going to start freshmen at both shortstop and catcher. Now, Nathan Hickey, their catcher, and Josh Rivera, their shortstop, have plenty of talent, are ready to handle it, especially defensively. Uh, we are talking about starting freshmen in two premium positions in the SEC. That transition is not necessarily an easy one. So those guys really have to prove it when the lights come on. But assuming they're able to do it, and I'm a believer in the talent, and especially in Rivera's makeup, he played at a very high level against premium high school competition. You know, this Florida team looks pretty darn complete. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's 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 worth noting you, you mentioned the youth of last year's last year's team. And so when viewed that way, I, I think it's it really is important that they did what they did late in the year and got into a regional. Um, it was a team that was playing a lot better by the end of the year, and, and I have to admit that was a little bit of a blind spot. When, when you and I were going through the top 25 and going through the exercise of putting our teams together, I was inclined to have Florida lower than, than you had them, frankly, and um, part of the reason why that was, I mean, I had my reasons, some of which I think are still valid, but a big part of it was that, well, last year they just were kind of, you know, just weren't that good, and that record-wise ended up being true, but they were playing a lot better at the end of the year. And so to the extent that momentum is a thing, and you'll get lively debate on both sides of that, I do think it matters when that momentum ends in something like going to a regional. If it was momentum and they fell just short of a regional, I'm not sure I'd feel that way. But the fact that they did get to the postseason, those freshmen last year had that taste of what that's like. They had a little taste of success. They played pretty well in that regional. They you know, clearly were just at that point kind of outclassed, but... It was a really tough draw going to Lubbock. I was very much anticipating they were going to go to, like, Atlanta, and then I guess because the Yellow Jackets came up as the number three overall seed, they didn't get... Maybe that's why they didn't get Florida, but going to Lubbock is tough. Yeah, I mean, nobody really goes... I mean, there's a reason why Texas Tech, you know, is kind of an annual team in Omaha this year, and they play really, really well at home. It's just a tough place to play, and so you're right. I mean, that, that is a tough draw, but, but long story short on Florida... Um, you know, I think you covered it well, but I, I think there was something really gained by this team having the success they did down the stretch, maybe as a springboard into 2020. Yeah, and the margins are just so thin. I don't want to dive into this what if too much, but what if they had gotten put in Atlanta? That run that Auburn went on, like, I don't think that, I, I don't know that that's out of reach for 2019 Florida to do something similar. And then we all look at Florida completely differently. That's true. Auburn only one game better in the regular season in the in the SEC. Yeah, and you know, I was at that game, that Saturday night game in Atlanta when Stephen Williams hit the walk off that absolutely stunned Georgia Tech. If Auburn loses that game, they're not going on the run they go on. So these things, baseball is such a funny game, and we can play this what if game with a whole bunch of teams, and I don't want to do it very often, but I. At the end of last season, I felt like Florida had really figured it out. And if you just look and see, oh, they went 1-3 and three in the postseason, 0-1 oh, in the SEC tournament, and then they lost. Um, they went out in three games in a regional. You might say, what are, what are you looking at to see that? But if you, if you were watching them at the end last season, I, I really feel like they had figured it out and that that can carry over to this season. So we'll find out um, it, whether I'm right or whether Joe's right. Much as we asked, with ASU, are they back? The same question can be asked for Miami. They're on pretty similar tracks as programs right now, and Joe wrote a story that you can check out in the college preview issue. Uh, 
in the magazine itself and online, I don't know, sometime next week probably, we'll, we'll, we'll tweet it out, Joe at Joe Healy, BA, on Twitter. Uh, check him out there. You'll, you'll see the story if you, if you go find it there uh, within the next couple weeks here. And I'll let Joe get into that in a second, but Miami, relative to, to ASU, was a little ahead of, of where, where the Sun Devils were last year, especially when you look at what they did on the mound. And as a result, that meant that they were in the mix to host a regional right up until the end of the season, whereas ASU had kind of fallen off by the time May got here in terms of the hosting race. And Miami's pitching staff, while good last year, could be even better this year because they're healthier. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's kind of what, where your eye is drawn when it comes to Miami as the pitching staff because you, you've got guys out there like Chris McMahon and like Slade Ciccone who are both guys that have been known for quite some time. They're both prospects. They were prospects in high school. They're going to be prospects for this upcoming draft. They've got big-time stuff, big-time arms. Certainly that's a big reason for optimism. They also returned Brian Van Bell, who head coach Gino Damari would tell you was their best pitcher last year certainly most consistent pitcher, and it's hard to disagree. He was actually one of the, quietly one of the better wins in the ACC. Uh, he was a big part of their success last year. Had they not had him in that role, um, it would have been tough to see Miami even being as successful as they were. So I really like what they have there on the mound. I also like that they have Daniel Fetterman back. He was a co-closer last year with Greg Valise. Valise now, now gone, so it's important that Fetterman is kind of back in that role. Tyler Kaiser's an interesting arm. He's a little bit of a swingman for him last year. And they also returned J.P. Gates, kind of an exciting two-way guy. Um, who did a little bit of everything for him last year, stepped in actually at the plate and had a really good year at the plate, hitting 340, kind of maybe even surprised Miami a little bit. Um, the lineup, though, in, including Gates, has me excited just because of uh, what they return and kind of the depth there. They return eight of their nine guys from last year. The only missing guy is Michael Amditas, and that's important because he was their catcher. But it's important to note that Adrian Del Castillo on the roster he played a lot of outfield last year. He'll move back behind the plate full-time. They also have Isaac Quinones on the roster, who was a full-time catcher two years ago. They've got options behind the plate. So this is an offense that I think is probably better than most people remember. Um, you know, it's Del Castillo at the top, but there's obviously Alex Terrell, 24 home runs, and, and he goes through stretches. And he's, he's a streaky hitter. He's going to go through stretches where he really struggles, stretches where he can carry the team. But certainly the end result of 24 home runs you'll take. Raymond Gill had a really nice year. You know, Freddie Zamora, a prospect at, at the shortstop position, has been really consistent offensively in his first two years. Then there's Anthony Villar had a nice year. Jordan Lala was actually better than even I remembered. Had 61 walks last year, Four, 446 on base percentage, 28 stolen bases. Really, really good player there. Um, yeah, I mentioned Gates. Tony Jenkins is a veteran, adds a little speed element to the lineup. Uh, Jenkins being able to start for them, and I had this conversation with Gino Amari the other day, that Jenkins being able to start for them kind of changes the complexion of their team defensively because with Del Castillo behind the plate, it allows them to have an offense, you know, with, with Jenkins and Lala, two guys that are good enough athletes to play center field. Jenkins, the better defender of the two. And then you've got Gabe Rivera as the, as the third outfielder. And Rivera, frankly, is a guy who could be a guy who takes a star turn in 2020. The, the tools jump off the page at you. I mean, he's a guy who's got... Maybe the best raw power on the team. He's got a good arm. He's a good athlete. Um, he's still kind of working on the, the consistency part of it, just really kind of being the same guy day after day and not giving up at-bats, things like that. So he, he's, he's got some strides to make, but, but he really could be a guy. If, if Miami reaches its potential, it would not be a surprise for someone like a Gabe Rivera to be the catalyst behind that. So I really like this Miami team from top to bottom. It's, it's a well-rounded team. Like I said, it's, it's, the, the pitching might stand out to you, but this is a better offensive club than I think most remember. 
Yeah, I, I think the pitching or the, the offense has really improved in the last couple of years. If you remember the teams that missed the tournament, it was because they had absolutely no offense to speak of. The pitching has been a thing that Miami has gone pretty consistently over the last uh, five years, really, since that Zach Collins and Willie Abreu group moved on that, that went to Omaha in back-to-back years. The pitching really has been there ever since then. I think what's a little different this year is if McMahon and Chagoni stay healthy, they have high-end prospects on the mound, whereas in the past it's been a lot of the Van Bells and Kaisers and um, a lot of just really good college pitchers, but there's a little more heat to this, and uh, we'll see if in the tournament that that can pay off a little more because I, I think that you do have to have some of that to go head-to-head with, with some of these other premium teams. I think that's why Louisville and North Carolina have been the ACC teams that have been the most successful uh, in, in the recent years. And, and you, if you take it back to when Virginia was in back-to-back finals, they had that kind of stuff on the mound too. The ACC teams that are doing it a little more on uh, guys that don't have pro potential uh, typically seem to struggle a little bit more. Maybe Florida State accepted here, but I, I feel like Florida State kind of rides that line pretty well of They've got some prospect guys, and then they have some college guys. You know, you have a Tyler Holton who's like a prospect guy, but you, you, you also have like, you know, this year you have C.J. Van Eyck, and, and last year Van Eyck and Parrish were kind of that, that dual um, prospect and, and college guy. And This year Miami can have that same thing combined with an offense that's maybe a little bit better as these guys get a little bit older and hopefully a little bit more consistent. Uh, it, it could be... All the pieces are there to put together. Now they just have to put them all together and have a consistent season. I think that was what was missing last year, especially late. They kind of fell off a little bit late, and that's what cost them hosting. And then they wind up getting sent to Starkville. And much as I said with Florida getting sent to, to Lubbock, good luck getting sent to Starkville in a regional last year. You know, that, that, was, that was a situation that was always going to be tough for the Canes, especially when it was their first time experiencing a regional environment. Now this year, they have that experience. There's not going to be a whole lot of places they can get sent if they were to get sent somewhere that are like that. So they're going to be ready for whatever gets thrown at them throughout the regular season or the postseason. And uh, it would be fun to see Arizona State and Miami back in Omaha. Uh, it, it would be a lot of fun to, to get these, these two traditional clubs back to that level. Yeah, I mean, obviously this is pretty far down on the um, importance level, just in, in terms of what I would like to see if those teams get back. But just a great like classic uniform combinations, like the, the script Miami with the script M and the orange and the green, and then Arizona State with that kind of cream jersey with just the devils written across uh, no, it. I want, I want the, the maroon jersey and the stirrups. Well, that yeah, so certainly, I mean, they've got multi, multiple looks that I really like, but I, I kind of gravitate towards kind of the cream with the devils across the front of it. The, the, the maroon is a, is a good look as well. I think I, I kind of associate that look with like the old, like the Barry Bonds and Oda B. McDowell teams. Yeah, when they were good. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so certainly, I mean, like I said, a frivolous thing, but, you know, it is kind of cool. There's something like very uh you know how people say like you know with the, the rose bowl sunset you know like you want the sunset and you want the field to have like ohio state and usc on it like i think there is something to that in the college world series and pardon me for being a little bit of a, a pollyanna about this but i think there is something to you know you being in omaha and being at this event and, and you look on the field and you've got kind of those not just those classic teams but also just those classic 
uniform looks. I think there's, there is a little something to that. If that's happening, much like the Rose Bowl has to be played at a specific time of day, and so you get the sunset, like, if we were to get ASU against Miami, I want it to be a day game. Like, if it's that opening weekend, it has to be, like, that Sunday day game. Uh, because if you, like, look back at a lot of, like, Miami and Arizona State's, like, biggest Omaha successes, they're all day games because they didn't play many night games in, in the old World Series format. And so if they are going to play each other, I want them in those uniforms we talked about during the middle of the day. Like, I, I just feel like that's the way to go. Um, and usually I don't advocate for two color uniforms. I want, I want somewhere in white or gray with the color. Uh, but in this case, I would definitely go for the two colors. Sorry, Tyler Kepner, uh, New York Times writer, who's very much the traditional, like, I want white and I want gray. But no, in this case, give me that, that green Miami against the, the maroon Arizona State and let them get at it. And, and that would be a lot of fun, and I think that would be a lot of fun for college baseball to see those two programs back on that stage. Um, there's a lot to be said for what Vanderbilt and Louisville, like some of these nouveau programs have done, but there's also a lot to be said uh, for, for the historical powers that, that have uh, you know, been a huge part of the sport for the last 40, 50 years and, and longer in, in some of their cases. So we have, we have the chance to, to see something like that as, as both Arizona State and Miami are starting in the top five uh, here in 2020. As I said, we're, uh, we're going to let you guys explore the rest of the top 25 um, on BaseballAmerica.com. We want to hit on some larger trends in the 25, and we're definitely going to talk about some more teams. But if you're looking for in-depth breakdowns, uh, BaseballAmerica.com is the place to be over the next week as we release uh, these team-by-team -team capsules. First trend I want to look at in the in the top 25 is the sec west we have what is it four sec west teams ranked between number nine and number 14 so they're all <laughs> they're all jammed right in there from Missis we got mississippi state arkansas auburn and lsu and i think the takeaway from us putting them there is that we don't know what to make of that we don't know who the favorite is yeah for, for for anyone in that i guess this is everyone because no one else was in the room when you and i put these <laughs> together but i was going to say for anyone who didn't see us spend a really inordinate amount of time splitting hairs between this team these teams it might actually just look like lazy ranking <laughs> that like we didn't know what to do with this group of teams so it's almost like we just threw them in like a bingo hopper and then just like pulled them out uh you know one by one and so it, it does look like that but but I think it just speaks to the fact that these teams are all kind of flawed, uh, but these teams are all really talented. And I, I think that's, if you really want to put a fine point on it, I think that's what you're looking at is every team has something to hang their hat on. They're all really talented because they're SEC West teams. They always are, but they're all flawed in one way or the other. And if you ask Joe and me to line these, the, those four teams up, we would come up with two very different looking Absolutely. lists. I've seen them. They're very different. And I... I wouldn't be surprised if either of us was right, if neither of us was right. Some combination of those four teams is going to be very good. Obviously, in, in this scenario, we have them all as hosts, um, which I don't know if they're – I should have looked this up. I, I guess it must have happened since there were seven SEC hosts that one year. But four from one division is, is kind of straining. Um, somebody is going to be a little disappointed in all likelihood that, that they aren't hosting because – 
four from one division is a lot, especially when you consider that in that year when seven SEC teams hosted, no one else from the SEC got in the tournament. So there was a clear, like clear cut distinction. A lot of teams just beat up on some teams that weren't quite as good. I don't think we think the SEC is is going to be like that. We think it still runs pretty deep. Um, you know, in that division, they still have A and M, which has one of the better pitching staffs in the country. Um, and you know, Alabama, I feel like uh, should be starting to, to take a step forward under under Brad Bohannon and Ole Miss, uh, which is going to be young but very very talented and should pitch at a pretty high level uh, at least in the rotation with with Doug Nikhazy and Gunnar Hoagland coming back. So that division is rugged. It's probably the most you know we don't have a ton of divisions in college baseball, so I feel comfortable saying it's the most rugged division in college baseball. But even if you apply like football divisions to baseball, like it would still be the most rugged division in the country, I think. Although the SEC East has three teams in the top eight. Yeah, it really comes down to what you value. Like it, it's a classic: just do you value kind of the the depth there, the SEC West? Do you do you, the the high end of the SEC East? I think in this case, I would go SEC East just because the. I mean, we're talking about some real national title contenders, whereas I think these SEC West teams, if, if for some reason, you know, I checked out of college baseball for the next four months, five months, and then I, you know, I checked back into it after Omaha and you told me that any of these SEC West teams won the national title, it wouldn't be a shock. But we have to kind of maybe like manufacture how that happened a little bit more. Whereas like if, if any of these SEC East teams that, we've, that we talked about, I mean, obviously we didn't talk about Georgia in our top five breakdown, but they're that third team. Any of those teams, it would not be hard to understand exactly how that happened. Yeah, that, that's, that's definitely a fair point. The depth of the West is definitely better, but you know, like Joe said, it's, it, it does in some ways come down to what you value. Um, we did put Mississippi State at the top of this group, and I think that that's mostly because of the top-end talent they have, but they're a very interesting team to look at because Ethan Small, first-round pick, Friday night starter, he's gone. Jake Mangum, you might have heard of him, uh, SEC uh, career hits leader. Colt hero. He, uh, he's gone. And they're not the only departures. Those are like the two top line departures. But, you know, there's a new catcher. Dustin Skelton's gone. Elijah McNamee's gone. So there's a lot that's new at Mississippi State. But the high-end talent of, of JT Ginn, of Justin Foscue, of Jordan Westberg, uh, probably unmatched in this group, at least. Yeah, I mean, you're really betting on, I mean, it is the high-end talent because you've got I mean, that, that group you could really put up against the, the teams that we're talking about at the very top of the rankings. You're talking about a lot of Team USA guys. You know, plus, you know, uh, was JT Ginn on Team USA this summer? Or was he? JT Ginn uh, was shut down, but Tanner Allen was on Team USA, who I did not mention and should have. Yeah. So, but JT, the, I guess the point being, the reason I ask you that is because had Ginn not be, he's a Team USA caliber sure, guy. Absolutely. Whether or not he was on the roster, a lot of times these pitchers, for those who, don't know. A lot of times these pitchers don't end up doing things in the summer because they had a, a hot, you know heavy innings load during the spring. So, um, but yeah, it's a lot of like Team USA caliber guys, particularly in the position player group. And then you got some question marks behind it. But I like the position player group enough where I had I had this team at the top of my pecking order within the SEC West, and I think I am betting on I am betting on the position player group being a cut above anything any other group within this SEC West, although Arkansas has got a case to make too with Casey Martin and Heston Kerstad. 
And then JT again being maybe an arm better than anybody else we're going to see. LSU has an argument there maybe with Cole Henry and Landon Marceau perhaps. Um, but to me, it's Ginn as, the, as maybe the best arm on the board among the SEC West teams not named A&M with Asa Lacey, who's not part of this conversation. Um, and the position player group uh, being a cut above anybody else. To the Arkansas fans yelling at their phone or, or yelling at their computer or whatever you're yelling at, maybe yelling at me on Twitter right now, um, Arkansas is not in the top 10. And basically, for me, that comes down to I don't know what the pitching is going to look like. I trust that the group as a whole is going to look good, but a huge part of the reason why Arkansas was as good as they were the last few years is because Blaine Knight and Isaiah Campbell were elite starters, and Connor Noland and Patrick Wicklander are really nice pieces to have coming back in your rotation, but when you look around, especially the SEC, but when you look around and those are your two clear-cut one and two, I don't know how many other teams that we're talking about in the top 10, uh, and in fact, I know no, no one else in the top 10 basically has one and two starters that are, uh, are not like elite level, uh, at least one, that doesn't have at least one elite level starter. And like I said earlier in the podcast, I, I, my bias is towards starting pitching a lot of the time when I start to put this together. And, and that's the question mark here. There's no denying that Casey Martin and Heston Kerstad and Casey Opitz are an incredible trio up the middle talent there, like middle of the order talent, uh, and, and that Arkansas is going to be good from a position player standpoint. But you know, whereas in the past they've had a big time closer in Matt Cronin and a big time starter in either Knight or Campbell, I'm not seeing either necessarily right now. And that's not to say somebody doesn't emerge in Fayetteville but I'm going to need to see it happen, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's we've we've talked about this before, but but sometimes what what can really kind of help you win games in the thick of the regular season is not necessarily what you're looking to have in the postseason. And if you go in with Nolan and Wicklander, you feel good about those two guys and what you're going to get from them. And yes, by comparison in the SEC, maybe it doesn't stand out to you, but at least they kind of know, barring you know things like injuries, for example. They kind of know what they're going to get from those two guys, but what about when they get into a regional? And if they host, okay, maybe the four seed, but when you get to the Saturday winner's bracket game, like who do you feel comfortable going against that number two seed that might also have you know, a, a strong offense or a guy they can put up against whoever you put on the mound? Do you feel comfortable with one of those two guys winning you a game in a regional, super regional, or in your first game of Omaha? And that's really where it's more of a question for me. I don't have any doubt that those two guys are going to win games for Arkansas, are going to have nice numbers, are going to be durable. It's just a matter of are they, gonna, are they going to measure up when they get into June? Yeah, it's, uh, there's definitely upside there. And Arkansas has the talent to make this ranking look dumb. Like, I, I'm, I will definitely acknowledge that. But, you know, right now I just have more questions about the Hogs than I have answers. And so they are just on the edge of the top 10. And I mean, they're 11. So like they're, we, feel, we feel like they're going to be pretty good here. But you know, when you start stacking them up, uh, th things do, in my mind, I, I do see question marks uh, that, that I want to see answered. Uh, and if, uh, if the Hogs answer them, we'll, we'll definitely be, be running them up because the schedule is not, not an easy one. And if they're, if they're competing uh, at a high level against it, uh, it's it's going to show and show quickly that they, they um, Dave Van Horn is not one to schedule uh, shyly. So we're we're going to find out probably 
pretty quickly how good this Arkansas team can be. Um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about here is the Big 12. Uh, we have Texas Tech as the top-ranked team in the Big 12 at number six, but Joe, there are a lot of questions in, in the Big 12, which was a really good league last year uh, and could be again, but you know, there, there's been some uh, there's been some talent drain when you look at guys that left in the draft versus uh, prospects that that you're you're looking at as as leading Big 12 teams this year and. Uh, they're just, it looks jumbled. It, it could go in any number of, of ways, could it not? Absolutely, it could. Yeah, I mean, the, the talent drain is, is very real. I mean, there were, in, in the last prospect ranking that the BA put out before the draft last year, they had four guys in the top 25. Uh, this year, now granted, this is a preseason list. There's still room for people to prove themselves, but our, you know, the, their top prospect is Nick Lofton, who comes in at number 42. So um, they just don't have the volume of high-end prospects this year. And I think, it, I think, you take that, you combine it with the fact that, yes, we have Texas Tech as a, as a favorite here, but when you get past them, you know, we've got Oklahoma State and Oklahoma ranked in the teens, but I don't think there's much difference between those teams and a group of teams that we had just outside the top 25 in Texas, TCU, and Baylor. Uh, there are questions with all five of those teams, but I think we think those five teams all have potential. So I think it's a year where if you're you know, a team that, or someone who is kind of hoping for the, the Big 12 to uh, represent as a league, whether that's with teams in Omaha or players in the draft. I don't know if it's going to be that kind of year where you can really wave the Big 12 banner in that way. If you're a college baseball fan, though, I think this league is going to be really fun. Yes, it is going to be entertaining, and I am going to say right now that for many of the 15 weeks when we do a podcast on Monday, we are going to come in here and say, I have no idea what just happened in the Big 12. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, from two to seven in particular. And uh, the seventh team there is, is kind of a, a pet team of mine this year is Kansas State. Um, you know, read my Big 12 preview that'll be up here in the next couple of weeks because I'll touch on it. But I think Kansas State might be sneaky good next year. I, I don't know that it's going to end in a regional appearance. I think that might not come in 2020. Maybe that's more of a 2021 goal for Kansas State. But I think they might be more than just frisky in the Big 12 this year. They're, they're pretty talented. So, But anyway, long story short, two through seven, I think, is going to be pretty jumbled. And really, I mean, Tech, we, we have them ranked sixth, but they're not without questions. And th them being ranked sixth is as much of a benefit of the doubt vote than anything else. Because they do, you know, they did lose, uh, arguably, their three best offensive pieces last year. And they did lose Caleb Killian uh, on, in the rotation. And they're always a team that is kind of mixing and matching pitching-wise anyway, um, but we're willing to kind of, you know, give them that benefit because every year they lose folks and every year they end up in Omaha. So that's just kind of our default at this point. Um, but you could convince me two through seven of just about anything, two through six in particular, let's take Kansas State out of it, two through six in particular, you can convince me of anything ranging from, you know, Texas, you know, being right behind Tech or maybe even winning the league because they have that level of talent to, okay, Texas actually is in a slide here, and they missed regionals again. Uh, certainly, I cannot imagine them finishing last again. However, I, I don't think it's too much of a leap to say that they could miss regionals again if things don't go very much better. I wouldn't predict that, but I mean, that's considering on the I still can't answer what happened last year. Right. You know, right. Who's to say it, it couldn't happen again? Um, but I, I don't think it will. I, I think that there are probably six regional teams in this league, uh, but yeah, line them up however you want, and frankly, include Texas Tech in that. Like we're comfortable saying that we think Texas Tech will be in Omaha, 
comfortable saying they're the favorite. If you told me Oklahoma State won the league, I would not bat an eye. You know, okay, sure. The, the, the Cowboys' young pitching came along. The Red Raiders' young pitching maybe didn't, and maybe that's the difference. You know, it, it, the league is young this year, and, you know, weird things happen when, when there, there are a lot of teams in the league relying on inexperienced players. So I, I think that's what we're, we're setting up for as a year in the Big 12. That's a similar place to where the ACC was last year. Now the ACC is much older, uh, looks very deep. They have the most teams in the top 25. It's eight? Eight. Eight teams in the top 25. Uh, we talked about Louisville and Miami. I think those are clear-cut favorites uh, in that league. And then after that, there's a lot of talent, and it could go in a lot of different ways uh, in terms of the exact order. Um, you know, we, we like some of these teams a fair amount, but, you know, we also jammed uh, six of these teams in the back half of the poll. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think that lets you know, again, much like the SEC West, like, we don't quite know. Um, so Florida State, we like in that group the most, but, you know, we got Duke in there, NC State, North Carolina, Wake Forest, Georgia Tech, like, Virginia was right on the cusp of this thing, could have been a ninth team in. And, you know, this is a, a league that's gotten 10 teams into regionals before, and I think this year uh, they very much can, can pull that off again. Um, you know, those nine plus Clemson plus Boston College, uh, pretty much everyone in the league should be better this year. Yeah, it's, you know, sometimes we say things uh, to define conferences and we don't really, they don't mean what we think they mean. So by that I, I mean... Sometimes we say, this league is really deep. And in the case of like the SEC that year they got seven hosts in, I actually don't think that was true. It was top heavy. It was deep in terms of teams that could get to Omaha, because if you host, it means your path to Omaha is plausible. Sometimes we, you know, we talk about, why is this league down? Like the Pac-12 has been the subject of this time and time again, not just in baseball, but in, in all the sports, and uh, the major sports anyway. And... I think what we Conference mean. Of champions. I think what we mean by that is there's no real like team to hang your hat on here. There's no power team here. I mean, when UCLA was down for a brief period of time in recent years, that's kind of where we were at with. Now Oregon State helps fill that vacuum a lot of times, but I think sometimes when we say why is this league down, we're asking why don't they have a team that's really carrying the flag? In football, that's because USC has been down. I mean, that's what we're really saying there. But we're saying ACC is deep this year. And I, that's true because you look at the top and you've got national title contenders. You know, Louisville and Miami, check that box. You've got teams that are going to be in the mix that maybe aren't obvious national title contenders but are going to be in the mix to host. Teams like Florida State, teams like NC State, teams like North Carolina. Then you've got those regional, solid regional teams that are maybe going to be in and out of the top 25 depending on how their week went. And we talked about them. Wake Forest, you've got Georgia Tech, you've got Virginia, you've got BC. And I'm probably missing someone there. There are so many teams in the ACC that <laughs> there are 14 of you, them. you can lose someone. But my point being is that I think that's what depth actually is. You've got the teams at the bottom are competitive. You've got the teams in the middle that are kind of all, you know, can be in and out of the top 25. They might toy with hosting. Maybe they fall a little short. You've got the solid host teams that maybe aspire to Omaha. And then you've got the Omaha locks is a strong word, but the, the Omaha favorites. And that's what we're really looking at with the ACC this year. 
Yeah, and it's going to be interesting uh, to see how it all shakes out. There, you, there's so many different combinations uh, of why why things might go one way or the other. The the freshman class last year in the ACC was so strong. When you look at you know Benellis at Louisville and Del Castillo at Miami, and you know you can go on from there. Those two guys really stand out. Sabato at, at North Carolina deserves a, a mention as well. And now those guys are sophomores. What's that going to look like? You got some uh, coaches that are either brand new, like like Jared at North Car- or at Notre Dame, or uh, still kind of building, like Mike Bell at Pitt and and uh, John Sheff at, at Virginia Tech. And uh, you know Virginia is looks like the rebuild is about to come to fruition here, and, and that they can get back into regionals. And there, there's a lot of of just different churning factors here, and, and teams on different uh, timetables, but it, it's all aligned in that 2020 should be a very interesting year in the ACC. Uh, and it's going to be fun to, to see how, how some of these teams develop over the course of the season because several of them have some pretty significant question marks. I mean, look no for, further than Florida State, who you know, lost their, <laughs> the legend that is Mike Martin, and, you know, but are returning a team that went to Omaha, uh, even if it was not... It took a while to, to get them to look like the national championship contender I thought they were last year. A lot of that team's back, starting with C.J. Van Eyck at the start of the, at the front of the rotation. Uh, but what's it look like with a different guy in the dugout? What does Mike Martin Jr.'s Florida State look like? We don't know yet, but we'll find out. And so that's why this league is going to be fascinating uh, this season. And uh, what a year for the ACC Network to launch. Haven't, still haven't heard like exactly what their baseball plans are, but I think that people will be able to see more ACC baseball this year as a result of that network launching, and it's a great year to tune in. If you, if you haven't gone through the, the struggle of looking for ACC Network Extra on whatever your TV provider device is, um, you don't have to worry about that as much this year because th- there is a network that should be showing a, a decent amount of baseball, and it will be very interesting, very compelling baseball all year long, I think. Okay, so the, we ran through some of these top teams, some of these top storylines to touch on. There's plenty more, uh, like we said, to come over the next couple weeks. You can find all of this content that we've talked about at BaseballAmerica.com over the next two weeks or in the magazine if you want to get it all printed out for you so you can flip through it at your leisure. Uh, I cannot recommend the Baseball America College Preview issue enough. We work really, really hard on it. It goes to press tomorrow. We're very excited uh, to have it out the door and to get it into your hands. Uh, So hopefully you enjoy that as well. I mentioned we're going to be on a regular schedule moving forward. That means we'll be back here next Monday. We will be talking preseason All-America teams which we'll publish on BaseballAmerica.com on that day. Before we get out of here, however, uh, there was a very important piece of news last week that came to my attention that we do need to touch on on the podcast uh, quickly here. Joe, Torchy's Tacos said that they intend to double in size in the next four years and that eventually they would like to be, it seems like nationwide, they're, they're talking about 1,500 uh, locations is their goal. They are much smaller than that right now. So that that, that would be a major expansion. Uh, you've heard me talk about Torchy's Tacos on this podcast before. I am, I am going to stand them, and they are amazing. Uh, 
Joe, you as a former Texan, where they are based, founded in Austin, uh, how excited are you about the news that, that Torchies is looking to come to the nation at large? It is acceptable to me on two fronts. I, I, I am excited to hear them doubling in size. I would also be excited if they were going to double the size of their tacos. Um, so either way, I think that's a win. Um, so I get a little bit nervous. See, like we've talked about how Whataburger got bought by a company in Chicago and the, the growth of regional chains makes me a little nervous because I, I think there's a, when that happens, there tends to be a little bit of a homogenization of the menu and uh, the quality dips a little bit because they're mass producing at a level greater than they were before. So. I'm actually just okay if they want to put one in Durham. I mean, that's fine. If they I just want to leave it at that. I have asked for that for a few years now. So if they, please come to Durham. Yeah, I mean, Charlotte can have one too. Like if you I just guess. want to come to the Carolinas, like you give one to Charlotte, put one in Raleigh, put one in Durham, uh, you know, put one maybe in South Myrtle Beach to give like the, you know, a touristy uh, location there. But um, yeah, I mean, if they don't want to go fully nationwide, as long as they put one here, that's fine. Yeah, that, that would be most excellent. Uh, so, again, as Whataburger news, as Torchy's news comes to a front, we will be addressing that uh, on the Baseball America College podcast. Nobody covers it like we do. Nobody does. Mostly we talk about college baseball, but also definitely regional fast food chains that I happen to like. <laughs> and Joe likes So that. we're not going to talk about Bojangles <laughs> ever? Uh, I mean, maybe. You're not if, a Bojangles if, guy, If right? Carlos comes in here, we can talk about Bojangles. Okay. I, I'm more of a cookout more guy a cookout, in North yeah. Carolina. So. Yeah. I haven't had enough of either to really like fully form my opinion yet. Like my, my snap judgment is cookout over Bojangles, but both were good my first couple times through. The, the sneaky contender here is Biscuitville. That's, that's, uh, I've not been to a Biscuitville yet, but I'm excited. I just like that there is a business out here called Biscuitville. <laughs> like more than anything else, even if it's bad, like I just like the name. It is, uh, it is very North Carolina uh, that there is, there is a Biscuitville restaurant. Um, so that has been the Baseball America College podcast. Believe it or not. <laughs> if, uh, if you want more of our fast food takes or our college baseball takes, I suppose, uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy B.A. And again, for the next couple weeks, BaseballAmerica.com is going to be filled with college preview content in advance of opening day, which is February 14 and coming very quickly. We have to go finish the college preview issue, so you can get that in your hands. Uh, but once, uh, once that's out there, uh, make sure to check it out in the wild uh, or online at your leisure. We will be back here next week to talk more college baseball and the 2020 season, specifically those preseason All-Americans. Until then, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for the download. Thanks to Joe for joining me, and we will see you again next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.